Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho podcast, all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And today we're talking about episode 12, A Change of Mind. Yes. So first up, a big thank you to everyone who got in touch with us about the recent episode we did with David Leach from Titan Comics, all about the um, Jack Kirby, Gil Kane edition of The Prisoner that came out. Um, We had a huge amount of fun talking to David and it's really lovely to hear that people are enjoying the episode as well. Yeah, and it's been a very pleasant surprise to know how many people have uh, uh, started reading the Titan comic as well. Everyone seems to be really enjoying it, and it's actually a shame that as of recording this episode, um, I think the last issue of uh, the comic, issue four of the miniseries, is out this week. Um, but what's kind of nice is, as David hinted in that interview, hopefully there'll be a chance for Milligan and Lorimer to maybe return to the world of the prisoner in the future. Yes, and I think once the trade paperback of it is out, we're going to do an episode where we talk a bit more about it in a sort of spoilery episode once everyone's (laughs) had a chance to read it. Yeah, and the one really nice snippet I just remembered, I know we said it in the episode as well, was the fact that next year also Titan are re-releasing Shattered Visage Mm. by uh, Dean Motter and Mark Asquith. So that's another thing to look forward to, which will be coming out, I think, in 2019. It is really lovely when we hear from people who are listening to know that people are listening and they're enjoying the episode. So, yeah, if you ever do want to drop us a line about this or any other episode, uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook, Time for Cakes Now is the name of the group, or on our website, timeforcakesnow.com. But the reason we're here today is to talk about the next episode in our rewatch of The Prisoner, and that's A Change of Mind. Yes, which we can finally do now that I have just about got my voice back (laughs) because it's not been great the last couple of weeks Um, and hopefully it will last out the episode it's already started to go (laughs) Um, but yes a change of mind Um, it's kind of an unusual episode um, that there's a lot of sort of political and social commentary in there Um, you know there's a lot of stuff that you could sort of maybe link to you know, some of the politics of the era, McCarthyism, communist social control, um, group therapy and sort of uh, emerging areas of psychology. But there's not an awful lot of plot in the episode, which yeah. is going to make it kind of an interesting one to talk about, I think. Yeah, and probably quite a short one to talk about. <laughs> no, I completely agree. It's, it's very much um, an episode which feels like it's got all of the... It's got all of the themes that the show is about in it, but it does seem to lack some of the meat of a of a plot that would actually be a way to bring these themes up. I mean, the nice thing about the show is that it's able to discuss often quite uh, complicated issues in the context of this 50-minute spy-fi drama every week. Here it it feels almost like a a summation of all the ideas that have been covered in the show so far. Um, it feels, dare I say, it, a little bit repetitive because it kind of pulls together a lot of different scenes, ideas, concepts that we've already seen in other episodes and lumps them in together. So it doesn't make for a particularly enjoyable episode to watch. It's a very interesting one to watch, but it's not the most easy one to engage with because it's very... It's very heavy on sort of telling you about maybe what McGowan wanted to say rather than 
making something that was a solid watchable episode of the show. Well, that's it. It's not an episode that I necessarily look forward to reaching when we're watching you mm. know, through the whole series. And yet it's always an episode that I think a lot about afterwards. Mm. Um, and an episode that in some ways makes me quite angry, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> I think that's what Patrick was trying to make everyone angry. I, I think there's a lot to it. But I, I think it suffers in some ways from feeling a bit, maybe a bit rushed in production, and a little bit cheap in production mm. compared to some of the other episodes. Definitely. Um, you can start to see the literal joins in a few <laughs> places that we'll come to. And it, it's a shame because obviously, you know, they that they had a large budget as British television went at that time, but it wasn't an enormous budget. And I think you can tell that so much of this was studio bound mm. and it does suffer maybe a little bit from having to be shot in that way. Yeah, I think it's a yeah, it's an in, it's an interesting episode of the show. Um, it's not my favourite, but at the same time, like you say, it's it's one where it provokes a lot of discussion about what what the show brings up in its themes. Mm. But I don't feel that it's one of those episodes where I uh, think about what actually happens in it. Mm. More about the ideas it it kind of throws up um, that are really interesting. And perhaps ones which you know which do define what the show is about. Again, it makes it quite a unique, unique episode uh, in the run because it's basically challenging you to kind of engage with some of these ideas, and it does make you, like you say, actually quite angry in places. It gets you feeling quite frustrated as well, and in a strange way, it is a, it's an unsatisfying episode, but a very important one, I think, in the run, just because, um, especially with only five more to go. Mm it feels like this is the point where it's talking about, you know, what the thesis of McGowan's vision of the show is. I think it, you know, it doesn't feel like anyone else's but his chance to be on a soapbox a little bit mm. and say, this is what I want to discuss in the show. I just wish that maybe it had, well, more of an original plot, not one that seems to be so familiar based on splicing together scenes and concepts that we've seen in in the preceding 11 episodes so should we crack on about the episode we shall they're right of course they're right of course quite right quite right i'm inadequate i'm inadequate 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 disharmonious disharmonious i'm truly grateful i'm truly grateful believe me Believe me. 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 So, A Change of Mind was written by Roger Parks, and this was his first major TV writing credit. According to some of the books, he was sort of a junior writer on some other programmes, but this is the first episode of something that he wrote himself. And afterwards, he went on to write for lots of other ITC shows and also had a very successful um, career as an author as well. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting that this is a script that came from someone who was almost brand new to writing television. Mm. Um, although, as I, I learned, particularly from reading Rob's book, is that there were a lot of changes made to the script as well on McGowan's behest. <laughs> <laughs> and it was directed by... Joseph Surf, a.k.a. Patrick McGowan himself. 
Um, it was originally supposed to be directed by Roy Rossotti, hmm. and he lasted one morning before McGoon sacked him. <laughs> Apparently, the uh, the cast and crew came back from lunch and found that he'd gone. Yeah, when was the last time that we saw Joseph Surf? Was that Many Happy Returns? Yeah, I think it was yeah. Many Happy Returns, because his other pseudonym, Paddy Fitz, that was free-for-all, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, this is his, his second pseudonym. So maybe that's quite in, um, explanatory of, you know, regarding why this episode feels the way it is. I mean, he took over directing it, and maybe by having a new writer he was able to uh, impress upon them what he wanted, or alternatively throw his weight around a bit and you know and make it into the uh into the episode he wants at script level as well which is why it feels like you know it just feels like this is him kind of shouting at the audience this is what the prisoner is about <laughs> um whilst also telling everyone to uh to be on the lookout for these kinds of things yeah i mean apparently one of the major changes that he made to roger parks's script is that um originally number 86 who's the scientist played by angela brown was going to be a love interest for number six or was it at the very least going to pursue number six romantically yeah. um and of course this got very quickly scratched out by mcgood who's like nope we're not doing that we're not doing that um so that went out the window completely but but maybe that was also a, a an interesting decision because you know Maybe for a, a young writer working on his first full episode of a TV series, that probably felt like a natural way to go. You've got this female character. Of course, they're going to be a love interest for the protagonist. That's what you do on these shows, isn't it? But then it doesn't turn out that way at mm-hmm. all. Um, and I think number 86 is a more interesting character for that. Yeah. And we've also got number two, who is this time played by John Sharp without an E, although sometimes... You will see it written with an E, but apparently that was a mistake made on one of the uh, on the part of the production, and his name shouldn't have an E on it. So even though it does in the opening credits, yes, <laughs> it doesn't really. No. Okay. I have to say, I don't think he's a particularly memorable number two, and certainly I think he's quite an unlikable number two. He doesn't have that that edge that makes him an you know a really interesting one to watch he's genuinely quite unpleasant and i think it's all but also he doesn't seem that uh that powerful as well you know a lot of them seem to have a an air of authority mm. um and a real command of what's going on he's he's rarely seen in the in the context of lots of other members of the village hierarchy and it's actually quite interesting that you see him and you do see members of all these committees, but they're, but they're kept separate for most of the, uh, the mm. episodes. He feels, again, very isolated, but he doesn't, he's not the most uh, interesting number two, I think, overall, because he doesn't have a unique thing about his character that you can remember. So all the other number twos I think we've had thus far, they have something about them, whether it's uh, the way they behave or their appearance or some little tick that they have. But you know, this this is almost like a number two who's there just to play the role of number two in this story about number six being declared unmutual and him needing somebody to go up against. Mm. And also it's interesting that in an episode where at the end number six actually wins in some way yeah. as well, um, it's not like I feel 
John Sharp's number two is a particularly strong adversary. So, yeah. Yeah, I was reading, I think it was um, Rob Fairclough's book, uh, The Official Guide, that in the um, early versions of the script, the, the character of number two in this episode was described as being a bit like a livestock auctioneer. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't quite come across. Mm. Um, but that could have been kind of interesting. So we begin with number six in his homemade DIY forest gym <laughs> that he set up in the woods, where he's got um, uh, like a high bar and a punching bag that he's built himself. Um, we, we've seen some of the footage of this, I think, in It's Your Funeral, yeah. when they were following him around to see what he would do. Yeah. I mean, the one thing about this scene as well is uh, there are some stunning use of uh, Magoon. And uh, I presume it's Frank Mayer, his stunt double, mm. which looks really out of place when they <laughs> when they intercut so frequently. Mm. Um, but as he's yeah, as he's working out, uh, he's accosted by a couple of stripy uh, stripy village goons who show up. Uh, this time, actually, they're ones who actually talk, which is it's not it's not the first time this has happened. But but rarely do the goons do anything other than turn up, mutter something, and then get into some kind of ITC fisticuffs. <laughs> Yeah, so they uh, they accuse him of being antisocial because um, he's set this gym up for himself in the woods and he's not using the public gymnasium <laughs> like everyone else. So uh, yeah, he they're not keen on the fact that he likes his privacy and they decide to settle it by throwing a few punches. But uh, unfortunately for them, they get on the receiving end of a bit of a kicking. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because, I mean, essentially this... It's weird to have the action scene up front in the episode mm. because then it just goes into this very philosophical episode about, you know, the nature of uh, being a member of the village community, about privacy, about what it means to conform within that environment and how and how the village does its best to enforce this. But, you know, the fact it, it moves to that, it's kind of interesting that it starts off with, uh, you know, with the fight scene rather than having that sort of paced midway through it or or even at the climax yeah and as they uh run off having um having been put on their backsides um uh, one of them says you'll face the committee for this <laughs> so clearly having failed to uh attack number six in the way that they intended they're now going to have another avenue of attack against mm. him by appealing to whatever this mysterious committee is and one notable thing about the goons <laughs> uh, one of them is uh, Michael Billington, who you remember from UFO as Colonel Foster. Mm. Mm. I think the last UFO reference, although we probably missed many of them, was probably uh, "It's Your Funeral." Yeah. So, yeah. so later on at the council chambers, uh, Number Six is sitting with a pen and paper, fully in some kind of form. <laughs> They've got these really weird sort of flat pens. I haven't seen anything quite like that before. Oh, those blue ones, which, yeah. 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 Um, even pens are strange in the village <laughs> and there's a poster on the wall it's a Lord Kitchener style poster mm. but it's number two um, the new number two saying your community needs you mm. I think it's again I think it just feels a bit on the nose to <laughs> you know to directly reference that um, because it, it in a way it contextualizes the show a little bit too much by by placing it in a specific era because it's it's ripping off that, but it's unclear if that's more of a a fourth wall breaking thing, which then makes it more about Magoon wanting to make this his uh, his sort of statement on what the prisoner was about. 
Yeah, maybe if you made it now, uh, you'd have a poster that said, like, uh, keep calm and don't be unneutral or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Keep calm and be a good citizen. (laughs) But there are those kind of ones at the beginning, Mm. you know, in the the Labour exchange. Yeah. So it's clear they do have a knack for, for using these things. But just the fact they use that image, I mean, it was, yeah. Like I said, it was a bit, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit too on the nose for me. But I like, but I like noticing it and seeing them pop up throughout the episode. And there's quite a few people sitting around in this sort of waiting room mm. area, I guess. Everyone writing, and in a room that we can't see, but but we can hear the conversation that's going on there. Number ninety three is being berated by forces unseen <laughs> um, because his behaviour has not been acceptable to the community in some way we never really find out why or what he did but i suppose to the village it doesn't really matter Mm. it adds to how sinister the whole thing is i mean all you see is the is is the punishment being doled out but you never see the crime Mm. and it makes you wonder especially in this environment whether whether there was a crime to begin with or it's or if it is if it is a crime it's something that the village perceives as a crime which is not necessarily what everyone else in the world would think yeah and and also they're they're trying to get him to hurry up, basically, because they say they've got lots of other people they need to help. They want to help number six because he's mm. he's uh, in trouble and they need to help number 42, who is always depressed. And you see number 42 sitting next to number six and she's um, in tears. So clearly, not only are they, uh, in inverted commas, helping people <laughs> with, their, with their problems, but they're also openly telling everybody else what everyone's problems are deemed to be mm. there's no secrets here um so yeah n- number 93 is made to come out and stand at a sort of rostrum with a speaker on it and confess how his uh, w- whatever his social shortcomings have been mm. but they direct him with what to say a bit like having a teleprompter but instead the words come out of the speaker and then he repeats them mm. in order to exclaim that, you know, the committee are right and, uh, you know, he's been disharmonious and he's he's very sorry. And once he's finished confessing and is in tears, everyone in the room bursts into applause to congratulate yeah. him on this wonderful social breakthrough that he's had. Yeah, it's very, it's very sinister to watch somebody who, well, I think given that you just see him emerge from this other room, you have no idea what's going on in there. You have no idea what what's led up to any of this. But to see somebody start repeating all these lines which are being fed to him. And it's odd because obviously it's not like they're even being fed to him in private. Mm-hmm. Like through an earpiece. I mean they're being said openly and he is meant to repeat them as statements that he believes as well. And it's strange because you can see him kind of cracking up a little bit whilst this is happening. But it's you know this idea of these kind of forced confessions that they're making people make to kind of, you know and to make them publicly as well it's clearly meant to make them appear to now be conformist in the village but at the same time the way it's done is is actually by breaking people you know and making them behave a certain way because they have a specific set of rules about you know what is considered harmonious and what is considered mutual you know, so it's a very it's a very sinister element of you know of what the village is doing. I mean, up until now, I think, although it will appear later in the episode, we've only ever seen the village handle people um, using, I suppose, two things. One has been sort of, you know, direct medical intervention 
in order to get people to conform or tell them things. Uh, and number two, we've seen them using mind control drugs, most notably on number six. Mm. So it's very odd that here you have this this idea that they are using this kind of brainwashing where it's, you know, at this point it's unclear if there's anything medical that's happened to uh, 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 to this guy. It's more that it's, you know, it's designed to change his way of being, <laughs> you know, in a strange kind of way. And it's, yeah, it's a very, it's a very disturbing thing to watch, especially as he, you know, as he gets so fired up when he's saying, you know, believe me, believe me, believe me over and over again. Um, and then the fact that everyone just responds in this kind of bizarre frenzy, it's all, mm. yeah, it's a very disturbing scene to watch. This is a guy from The General, right? Yeah, the one who picks him up on the beach. He picks yeah. him six up on the beach and says, you know, we're taking you to, to your exams or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's not like he's a, a brand new resident or yeah. anything at this point who, you know, might still be rebellious. We've seen him being part of the sort of village order before. Mm. Not necessarily that he's a warden, but that he's been uh, taking part in a role in the village in mm. which he was presumably doing what the village wanted him to do. Mm. So it's, it's not like he's a number six style rebel here. Um, he's just he's just some guy in the village that we've seen before and suddenly this is happening to him. So if it can happen to someone like that, then it can happen to absolutely anyone in the village, presumably. Yeah, it's, it's odd because I think we always talk about the fact that occasionally these numbers do get reused again, for example, or we see recurring actors here and there. But in many cases recurring performances are quite limited. I think we've had um, uh, Mrs. Butterworth's maid pop yeah. up a couple of times. Yeah. Um, although explicitly one was outside of the village. Mm. Um, here we've got um, this guy showing up. And it is unclear if it's meant to be the same character or they're reusing the actor. But there is a very sinister element that comes from potentially it being the same person. Mm. Because it could just mean that once in a while they reshuffle everybody's numbers around. So after you attain a certain, you know, value that might come with this number, it could then be completely undone. Mm. The other side of it is it just adds to the confusion that there are people walking around and maybe they, you know, to give somebody a number, but it being only temporary in some way would also be a very disturbing thing to happen, that they don't actually care. They just assign people things. And if it is the same character as before, maybe this was somebody who was who was conforming but even that you know even in that context he's managed to slip up in some way and uh, become now you know the subject of this treatment by by the people who he was a few episodes back uh, in the general actually you know supporting by helping to you know to maintain the the regime and the and the program that was being run by the mysterious general so now that number 93 has been dealt with number 6 is called in to the uh, committee chamber <laughs> Which is the same place that the sort of election committee was in free for all, isn't it? Down the steps, and yeah. they're all sitting in the inner circle. There's a bunch of guys wearing top hats, and uh, also a, a disembodied voice coming from somewhere. <laughs> and I can't tell if it's coming from the real to real player or somewhere else. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's odd because it sounds initially like. It is coming from that, but then you realise that he turned that the other guy turns it on to start the recording. Mm. So there are multiple things that could be going on here. I mean, one, it's not it's coming from somewhere else. Uh, another thing is that it comes on when you know it's coming out of a speaker, um, 
which is being controlled by somebody. But also, it's what would be really weird would be, you know, if it is, you know, like Blink, <laughs> where it's where it's a pre-recorded conversation that mm-hmm. where they recorded somehow one half of this whole thing and they just play it out. It's a very weird. It's a very weird thing just to have a moment where it's unclear where this this voice, which is passing judgment on Number Six, is coming from. But yeah, you're right. It's un. Yeah, the origin of it is a bit strange. Yeah. And uh, they ask him if he's filled his written questionnaire of confession in, <laughs> which she uh, responds that of course he has, and promptly tears it up and throws it in the air <laughs> like confetti. Um, and the, the committee inform him that they're there to investigate complaints from the public, and specifically complaints about his behaviour towards his fellow villagers. <laughs> uh, and they, uh, it, he sits in a, a chair in the middle of the circle of tables and the butler comes along and um completes the circle by pushing the table in so that number six is completely surrounded and the chair occasionally seems to turn around Mm. um depending on who's talking to him and uh they inform him that they haven't invited him there to defend himself that uh they're just asking for his complete confession (laughs) you think well is that all and that everything he's uh, saying is being recorded and could potentially be heard, I guess, by everyone in the village. Um, and they keep wanting him to be very careful about uh, being disrespectful towards the committee. Yeah, clearly they've... Well, I think it's it's not hard to imagine a situation when there are spies in the village who are keeping track of people and who alert uh, the village hierarchy to uh, to people who they believe are acting in this disharmonious manner um but again it does reek more of the the mccarthy era kind Mm. of you know people um people being accused of of things when they've been uh, reported by somebody else and you know there's this element that that you know this you know it's an overtly political episode this one and i think you know this is the first of those heavy-handed hints that you know that that's what he's going for here um this idea that accusations are going to be made against him for something well it's also odd because all of a sudden they decided that he's unmutual now now i know you know this is not again it's hard to place when this episode is taking place in in number six's uh, uh residency in the village as it were but why they suddenly invoke this now is all the more bizarre and the fact they come up with these reasons especially ones you know based on on how he has behaved as if all of a sudden it's become a problem for them and he's, you know, he's known in the village for being this, you know, this character. And I think they, they're so alert to it that they, you know, they treat him differently from everyone else anyway. So the fact that they now they, you know, they come up with these claims that that other people have reported his behaviour um, is also interesting because they they take no responsibility for having been offended by his behaviour themselves. You know, they, you know, they, you know, they blame other citizens. They blame their own citizens mm. for putting him in this position rather than being explicit about the fact that it's 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 them, I mean, the village, who are actually offended. Yeah, and you get this insistence very early on that there's a disconnect between the committee and number two. Mm. Because when number six says, oh, you know, you must have read my file, that, you know, I'm I'm disharmonious. And, uh, and they say, oh, no, all, all of your files, all of your information is with number two. But we're impartial and we're only interested in what Mm. your fellow villagers will have said, uh, which is clearly untrue Mm. because number two is clearly actually ultimately in control of everything. Mm. 
but it you kind of question as the episode goes on back and forth how much control number two does have over the committee mm. because had num you know if number two didn't interfere in the process by getting um uh, the, the scientist to fake the experiment later on would it all have actually gone through and happened to him mm. it's kind of unclear it's un well, it's unclear to me anyway and no i know i think you're completely uh, correct because it's all the more weird that you have a you know a plot that seems to be being orchestrated by number two but it's being mediated by this committee who also seem to be ranked outside of and above number two's control mm. but that just adds to the whole you know orwellian nature of the whole thing i mean <laughs> you know the the fact that, you know there is no linear hierarchy that you can see which just makes it all the more confusing mm. there's just this you know it's very much there's number six and there's everyone else and more so than ever in this episode it, it's clear that everyone else includes other members of the village because we've seen in other episodes like uh like checkmate for example there are people in the village who are against the village hierarchy you know it's you know there are always these pockets of resistance which they talk about um i think most notably there was also you know the the group who are being monitored in um in it's your funeral mm. you know the, uh, you know i think all these you know all these people have been spoken about so frequently in the show it's clear that some people are there against their will yeah in this episode it's all about everyone conforming and actually everyone turning on number six so it just adds to the fact that this is an episode about number six and perhaps very intentionally patrick mcguin versus <laughs> you know everyone else and him feeling that his individuality is really at stake and it's and it's threatened and it's threatened by false accusations and he's being called upon to uh admit to things which are not true or things which he believes are uh, right but have been deemed unmutual because him you know him simply standing up for himself is not a bad thing to happen but it's clear that's not what you know it's that cult of the individual thing that uh that uh peter wingard's number two was talking about i think in um in checkmate you know it's that it's that fear that people will have their own their own desire to be themselves and to not actually make other people join them but encourage other people to be individuals as well yeah, and I think the the way this whole scene is framed is is deliberately confusing number six and in turn the audience as to what the hierarchy structure even is here because you very specifically have a circular table which then gets completed when the butler pushes mm. the um, the final piece of the table in which a bit like the round table means that there is no one sitting at the head of the table. Mm. So who is in charge of the committee? It appears that there's no one. Or is it the disembodied voice? But who even are they and where are they? And mm. are they the head of the committee? How does a committee function if it doesn't have a, a chair? Mm. You know, but, but you, you can't know and you don't know. And then suddenly amidst all of this, you hear a clock striking and they announce they're going on a tea break. <laughs> it's like suddenly it's just a game of cricket. And it's yeah. like, oh, look, it's time for tea. Off we go. Yeah, it just adds to the whole absurd nature of, of, uh, of Six's environment here. Public enemy number six. If you insist. But public enemies cannot be tolerated indefinitely. Be careful. Do not defy this committee. If the hearings go against you, I am powerless to help you.
So once the committee have upped and left, uh, leaving only the butler behind to pull the piece of the table out so that number six can leave, he goes back out through the waiting room and coming out of the speaker on the podium is a sort of chopped up version of the confession of the uh, the previous guy mm. um, with, without the prompted side of the of the confession in there and just repeating bits of bits of uh, his confession and number six just stands at the podium for a second applauds and walks out of there (laughs) (laughs) so in his uh, smugness having uh, left the council chambers and decided that he will not be party to uh, the uh, forced confessionals which are, are being requested of him he walks through the village and immediately he notices that other members of uh, the village are ignoring him so one person in particular number 61 um i think number six says good morning to her or says you know it's a lovely day and she just ignores him and he even he looks quite perturbed by this i mean i think it's often the case that other people say hello to him and he's he's quite startled by the fact you had to give this uh this regimented response then he um he goes to uh the tally ho uh newspaper seller in the background somebody sees him and then just turns away immediately. So it's clear that something is going on in the village where people are now aware that uh, Six is somehow tainted in some way. Hmm. Uh, so he purchases a copy of the Tally Ho. Um, now, is this actually a regular issue? Because it says like opinion poll on the roll. Is, hmm. you know, is that like what the... Is that like a headline thing? I don't know, have? because the the headlines look like they're already written, even though this has only just happened. Yeah. <laughs> Which is all the more sinister. It's like when he gets um, he gets asked to run in the election, and then mm. immediately people rock up with uh, you know with the big billboard with his face on, um, pre-prepared. <laughs> but it's clear, yeah, that he's um, whatever has just happened has either been pre-planned or you know in some way it was you know it was known that this was this was going to be the outcome of of them trying to uh, get six to confess. There are sort of three big headlines on this copy of the tally ho. Number 93 confesses disharmony. So he's in the clear now. He's fine. The committee hearing continues. So these are the things that we've been learning about. And yet more sinister, uh, number six for further investigation. Mm. So they clearly knew that he wasn't going to cooperate. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're not dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he wasn't going to cooperate. But yeah, he he seems perturbed to, uh, to read this and to see the reaction that his fellow villagers are having to the sight of him. So he stalks off back to his cottage and crumples up the tallyo and throws it in the fireplace. <laughs> By the way, he never seems to actually have a fire on in his uh, in his cottage. Presumably he's just going to sit there gathering dust if he doesn't put the fire on. There are a couple of odd things about this issue of the tallyho, right? Because, well, the, the one on TV, not the one we're recording right now. <laughs> um, haven't other editions of the tallyho had dates on yeah, them? Yeah. Because uh, it was Schizoid Man, wasn't it? Where um, the fact that the date on the newspaper, there's something where you see a date on the newspaper and it's meant to be the next day, but actually loads of time has passed. Yes, it's that February 11th thing. Yeah. 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 But this edition doesn't have a date on it at all. Yeah. So you don't know even what time of year this is supposed to be, or there's no way of placing it. Um, But also, on the, uh, well, particularly on the new Blu ray, the picture is so clear. And at one point, there's this really nice close-up where you see number six's POV looking at the newspaper that you can read loads of the text in the columns. (laughs) 
And it's just weird, mashed up sentences yeah. of nonsense. It's like reading a, it's like reading something that's been encoded, mm. uh, and that you need some kind of spy decoder to uh, to understand. Or a bit like in um, Dance of the Dead when he hears the nonsense on the radio, something mm. that doesn't make any sense, and yet you can't help but feel that there should be some sense you can make of it if only you knew how. Yeah, I find it odd because if you if you're making a prop. Obviously, you don't intend for all the small print to be read um, in this, but it's intriguing that it's not like one continuous piece of text that they've copied in from somewhere, mm. you know, or columns of text that they've cut from, you know, from some other thing. It's the fact that literally there are fragments of sentences that all seem to be quite interesting, and then the sentence changes, <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on. There's there's just weird stuff. It's all cobbled together about, you know, it's got various names, places, events, all kinds of things. It's kind of this. It's a very strange read, but um, yeah, I don't know where any of that stuff has come from. You know, I think I think it's um, similar things happen when uh, they've shown. So, oh, is it is it one of the documents that the professor is writing in the general, where you can see there's jargon text on it as well. Mm. Um, it's just weird to have a whole a whole screenshot of of the tally ho and just be able to read all the nonsense that's in it. Because in a strange kind of way, I wouldn't be surprised if the tally-ho just consisted of headlines. <laughs> and they deliberately put jargon in there anyway, just to uh, just then you know one would ever read anything beyond the headline. Yeah, because who reads anything other than a headline anymore anyway? <laughs> um, you know, it's like reading a tweet and saying, well, I know everything now, <laughs> um, which uh, I'm going to come back to later because I have some things to say about this episode. So number six then realises that number two is already in his cottage and isn't entirely surprised to find him there. And uh, they, not for the last time in this episode, exchange proverbs together. Mm. Um, and this is quite a neat piece of foreshadowing, really, because num number two claims that uh, the slowest mule is closest to the whip. In other words, if number six doesn't um, get his act together with the committee, then he's going to get punished. But then number six replies, he who digs a pit will one day lie in it, uh, which is effectively exactly what will happen to mm. number two by the end of the episode. Um, and in fact, the next time we see them exchanging proverbs together in this way, that is a, what is about to happen <laughs> to uh, to number two, which is why I really love this little exchange. Um, but number two basically is there to warn him yet again about taking the committee seriously hmm. and taking the process seriously and that he he won't be indulged by the community forever um that you know he, he won't be tolerated forever and that at some point he will be shaped to fit by by the community he does seem like you said earlier slightly distant from the committee's functions he talks about it as a as something that he has no control over hmm. um and he's, he's simply telling number six what will happen if he does not concede to uh, the committee's sort of demands on what they want him to do. I also like the fact that when they, you know, he makes reference to you know being shaped to fit. Um, for me, this this goes right back to um, Arrival when six is having those psychological tests, uh, one of which involves um, you know putting. Like a you know a, a square is it a square block in a round hole or or vice versa? But when he puts it in, it kind of it you know the 
the shape actually closes around the block he has. Mm. I mean, I'm sure it's not a direct throwback to that at all, but it's a you know it's a nice it's a nice return of that motif in how despite all the time that's passed, you you know the way the the way the village views number six is like that you know that piece that just won't won't fit into the into the hole that they've made for him. Yeah. And number two claims that he won't be able to intervene if the mm. committee decide to rule against number six, that he won't have the power to do that. And you can tell that number six is a bit sceptical about this, um, because clearly in his past experience, the number twos have had pretty much free reign mm. to do uh, largely what they want <laughs> in, in the village. But uh, yeah, number two claims that no matter how important number six is, the committee will still be able to take action against him. Mm. So... Then we get the arrival of number 86. Yeah, played by Angela Brown. Yeah, um, for the first time, who kind of strides in and announces herself as someone who has previously been before the committee. Mm. And she kind of very much of factly says, oh, well, you know, they were very fair. I was at fault. That doesn't matter. Um, and she, she's basically there to try and ostensibly pull number six out of the fire by getting him to um, the social group that he's mm. due to go to and to the medical that he has to take after this. And again, she cautions him about how seriously he needs to take everything, that he needs to uh, take the committee more seriously because everything is being televised and therefore his attitude in front of the committee is so important. And, I mean, that seems to be like a direct reference to something like the the McCarthy trials mm. where everything is is out in public mm. with the intention of making it a bit of a show trial mm. and putting on a show for the public in order to um sort of drive home the ideology behind um what what it is that you're trying to do and at one point number 2 leaves the cottage to leave number 6 talking to uh, number 86 and then within the space of about 10 seconds, he's back in the green dome watching it on the screen. I mean, how did he get there so quickly? Yeah, he teleports faster than that cat in Dance of the Day, <laughs> which pops up all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, he very dismissively, he, he's, he's sitting there talking with the supervisor, and he very dismissively watches number 86 working with number 6 and says, Ah, oh, females. If she makes one mistake, we'll lose number 6. He's He's clearly very well he's he he's pretty sexist but he's he's clearly quite anxious about how this whole thing is going to play out and does seem to have some genuine fear that something bad might happen to number six if they don't pull it all off hmm. and his you know this this misogynistic statement is coupled to the fact that we've already seen this committee which is all male yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, and, and interestingly, he's he's talking to the supervisor as sort of his confidant in this. So clearly, unlike some of the number twos we've seen in the past, who've kind of brought in their own right-hand man mm. or who have relied more directly on the scientists that they're working with, like within ABNC, for example, or um, in uh, Hammer into Anvil, where he had his own guy with him. This number two, again, feels quite isolated because he clearly doesn't trust or even like number 86. Mm. And he's relying on the supervisor as his right-hand man here. But the supervisor's been around before him or will be around after him and maybe isn't really his his friend. Yeah, I think I think the supervisor is a constant in the village, much like the butler. 
And this number two just feels like he's there to oversee this whole thing and then he'll be gone at the end of it, I suppose. What's most telling is is the fact that he doesn't want to get his own hands dirty at all. Mm. A lot of the other number twos get stuck in with number two or they they really like to uh, be present when parts of the plans that they're overseeing are being implemented. Mm. It's interesting that this number two goes back to his house and is watching on a screen and simply comments on it and starts to immediately work out where he can apportion blame if it does go wrong. He's not somebody who can take responsibility for the plot itself. And maybe that's also part of his undoing. The fact that he wants to, you know, he wants to be in charge, but he's clearly in a situation where he's not at all this time. He doesn't feel as, um, as all powerful as other number twos have been. He doesn't feel like, you know, the village have given him the autonomy to carry out um, his own plan or make decisions. Mm. He's simply there to see it happen and he, he can't trust those around him. And he's worried that if it doesn't work, it will reflect badly on him. But he's not the kind of person who would ever get involved and, and make it happen himself. Yeah, interesting. If if you take this as being the next episode after It's Your Funeral, which it it isn't necessarily so, but mm. if it is then in It's Your Funeral, you've had this massive shake-up in the way the village apparently worked, where the number two, who the outgoing number two, who was apparently the, the proper number two, mm. failed to get assassinated like he was supposed to. And then the new number two, who was supposed to take over, has presumably been carted off somewhere for failing in his, uh, in his duties. So if this is the next number two to come in, maybe there's a bit of a, a power vacuum. Maybe no one really knows what to do. Mm. Because the, the the plans have all gone awry, um, and number six is starting to win a bit too often. Mm. So eighty six has brought number six to uh, the social group, and what we see is a group of villagers who are, I suppose, in the forest, seated, you know, on chairs, in trees, all kinds of things, uh, all discussing the social principle and values of the village and how they can all be part of that, but also how they are able to identify how what's her number number 42 yeah is actually you know not following this and how that is ultimately a you know a flaw in her yeah so the the group that's in the forest all seem to be very deliberately young cast members mm. like student aid cast members and in, in some ways it feels a bit like um you know a, a bunch of students uh arguing about um, society and politics in the way that that mm. only students would, and then and then immediately getting angry when an outsider basically <laughs> tells them that they're all they they should all just stop because it's all nonsense. So however much they disagree with each other, they disagree even more with some old dude coming along and telling them to shut it. Basically, <laughs> but the point that seems to be getting put to number forty two, the flaw, the uh, the sort of crime that she has committed against social order is that she is a poet and she was composing a poem when she failed to notice number 10 greeting her. Mm. And number 10 accuses this of being uh, a a failure of playing her part in the social order, that everyone should be together and therefore everyone must greet one another. Mm. And it's, it's not entirely clear what the other guy arguing is arguing for because then they get interrupted by number six sarcastically mm. clapping and a sort of like slow hand <laughs> clap well done everyone yeah it, it it feels like the kind of to, to be honest it, it feels like the kind of 
pointless crap, if I can be blunt mm. about it, that people still get upset about today. Mm. About, you know, people apparently just not being able to just mind their own business anymore mm. without being accused of doing the wrong thing by minding your own business. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't, you, you know, if, if you're a bit... Um, uh, you know, socially anxious, or if you're a bit shy, you get accused of being anti-social, even though that's just how you are, and you would much prefer it if people would just leave you the hell alone. <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like, um, you know, a failure to engage is treated as a a failure to act, hmm. and therefore it's a it's a failure to do the right thing, even though, you know. These are just judgments being passed down based on what the what the nature of of their social order is. And it's a failure also to understand that their social order, one, may not be the correct social order and two, may conflict with others mm. as well. It's just a sense that I don't know what it's you know, how it's uh, staged, but it just feels like there are lots of people who are arguing about number 42 and her behaviour while she's present, which yeah. is also very strange. And they're having, you know, like like they are, you know, they're over-intellectualising something in the hope that by continuing to ramble about their belief and their understanding of, of social order, it will eventually come up with some some solution that will become clear to everyone. And number 42 will, will realise ultimately that she is wrong, you know. And the fact that they they're arguing with each other it's because they can't put their finger on why you know why things just don't don't work like that and they don't understand why why 42 doesn't doesn't fit in although they've clearly taken it upon themselves to use this idea of the social group in order to uh air quotes you know help her and bring you know and bring her into it but they don't fully understand what i mean they're not the people to help her in a, in a strange kind of way they're it's such an accusatory tone uh, without actually offering any any sense of inclusion, which would probably be the foundation of how you'd want to uh, interact with somebody who you felt was not interacting with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, her, her crime seems to have been having her head in the clouds thinking about her art, yeah. which, to be honest, is how I spend half my time. <laughs> um, you know, it's I, I go and feel for her. But at the, at the same time, she's clearly so um, sort of browbeaten by this whole process and you know the 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 kind of social peer pressure of of feeling like if everyone's telling you there's something wrong with you and wrong with your behavior then there must be something wrong with you and you'd feel terrible guilt about it then she's she's clearly desperately trying to fit in which is why when number six sort of intervenes Mm. Uh, and she and she accuses him as you're trying to disrupt my social progress. Mm. And he responds by saying, "That's strange words for a poet," mm. which I think is an incredibly telling remark. That it may even not be number six saying this, but Patrick McGowan saying this yeah. that it is incumbent upon an artist to be apart from the social order and not try to fit in. Mm. That you have to be a bit rebellious that you have to stand up for yourself and that if you don't, how are you going to create anything? So as the session is kind of falling apart (laughs) uh, owing to number six's uh, presence, uh, we then get a new style of goon appearing (laughs) 
who are uh, medical goons who show up. <laughs> I mean, they don't do anything particularly threatening, um, like actually get into a fight that would be very strange. But they uh, they accost number six and he goes with them to the hospital. Yes, in, in some ways they feel a bit like the kind of medical goons that you get in dramas about... Um, mental health facilities as in yeah. the kind of orderlies whose job it is to manhandle people a bit if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing yeah, yeah it's very one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah, yeah yeah um so he gets taken to the hospital for his medical and there's a doctor examining him and basically giving him a, a sort of clean bill of physical health mm. i guess and when he leaves outside and six sees a guy who's just kind of standing around and he's got a very obvious scar mm. on his right temple. <laughs> you were trying to look out which side is left. And yeah, right. I was like, oh, is this the side? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who is just kind of standing around and he speaks to him. And then uh, Nunsix goes over to that, you know, you know the, the corridor with the purple window that we've occasionally seen the guy levitating the egg and the people moving their feet around mm. and all sorts of weird stuff happening in there. Which often are done without context, you know, in previous times. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there's there's now context to this one, um, in that it's now called the uh, the aversion therapy room, mm. and there's a guy strapped to a chair who is being forced to watch a video that cuts between um, footage of Rover coming towards the camera, and then an image of number two, and then a flash of the word unmutual, mm. which is all very odd and. It sends him into a complete frenzy. Yeah, when yeah. specifically when he sees the word unmutual. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure if this is intentional, but to me, this maybe explains some things that happen later on, which I will come back to. So, uh, so number six then goes and has a chat with the guy with the lobotomy scar. And um, the, this guy says that he's, uh, he was unmutual in the past, but mm. now he's very happy. Yeah, so we've. It's interesting because in this episode we've seen a couple of stages of of how the village deals with people who are unmutual and disharmonious. We have at the beginning we have number ninety three, who is the character who is treated um, by the forced confessional stage outside the council chambers. The next stage of that is clearly uh, some medical procedure, which involves a lobotomy, which. Again, it's being revealed here as, you know, I was I was on mutual, but now I'm cured. So it's interesting that they show the different stages of, of treatment. So clearly this guy who has had a lobotomy, you know, didn't uh, didn't uh, conform after after having one of these false confessional things. And he's at the next stage of things. And I like the fact that as a callback to a previous episode, um, I can't remember which one it was, but was it was it Checkmate where they make reference to leucotomies as well? Um, yes, it, it was because it's the it's the doctor who um, who um, treats the the queen into convincing her that she's in the, um, in love with number six. Um, she also examines number six, and she mentions that you know his aggressive tendencies could be dealt with by a leucotomy. Oh yeah, because she was quite quite willing to to do all kinds of things to number six. Oh, she, she was well yeah. up for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is clearly something they do, and it also in some ways reminds me of um, in Dance of the Dead, whatever it is that they've done at the end to Roland Walter Dutton, Mm. 
when he seems to have just completely been been dispossessed of his mind mm. in some way. You know, they, they, they obviously do this to people. So then we cut to number six, uh, again being in the committee room, where, uh, well, it's not the lead guy, but the guy who, who seems to speak for the committee, uh, who's wearing the black and white uh, uniform with the top hat. Um, he says that the committee is cl- has classified number six as unmutual, and if another complaint is made about him, he'll be recommended for, and he kind of shouts this out, <laughs> you know, um, for something called instant social conversion, mm. which given that that's something that is being bandied about as a solution in the village um, is like to be something which is extremely, uh, extremely sinister and perverse, <laughs> even though it has this quite benign title. Yeah. And they, they uh, for some reason, uh, when he taps his pen on the table, all the lights go out and he carries on talking mm. while number six is just illuminated by a spotlight. And he's spinning around. Yeah. yeah. And then when the lights come back on, the entire committee has vanished into thin air and only the butler remains to pull the table away again. Yeah. And and the butler gives number six kind of an odd look at this point. I'm not sure if he's pitying him or or is kind of trying to weigh him up. I'm not really sure what's going on there. It's I think we'll we'll come back to uh the butler in in our discussions on the last couple of episodes <laughs> of uh of the prisoner because i think the butler is you know so far much like the supervisor in these episodes you know so far they have been agents of the village hierarchy but in this episode we've seen the supervisor act acting as almost like the permanent member of of the village to uh this number two who is trying to find his way in in uh carrying out the village's plan here but also the butler here he i think you're right that there's a look there which is him questioning exactly what is going on you know almost like he you know he's he's not trying to give any hints or anything to number 6 um but there's a look that says he you know he might be silent but he knows exactly what's going on mm. um i think that's the most interesting thing about him I and mean, he you know, you know angelo muscat he does he conveys a lot even though he has no dialogue at all, um, and I think in this case, yeah, the fact that he, the fact that he responds to number six by pulling the, you know, by pulling out, and he's the one who's who's letting number six go. Hmm. Uh, so it's yeah, it's weird. It's it's not necessarily that he's on his side, but you get a sense that maybe, you know, maybe he does have a sense of fairness in him. You know, maybe I mean maybe he doesn't believe in 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 whatever this uh, this process is. Um, that number six is being subjected to. Your attention, please. Here is an important announcement. Number six has been declared unmutual until further notice. Any unsocial incident involving number six should be reported immediately to the appeal subcommittee. So then number six heads outside again and you start to see over and over again them using the same handful of studio-bound mock-ups of bits of Port Marion for this. So he, he's at the same place getting the copy of the Tally Ho that he was last time. Mm. And he's walking down the same sort of uh, lane with flowers on either mm. side with a, a, a matte painting of Port Marion in the background where you can see where it joins the ground, um, particularly on the, on the cleaned-up version of, uh, of the episode. 
um, yeah, it's it's it makes it more noticeable because they keep reusing the same mm. two sets again and again, which makes me wonder if maybe this was a particularly cheap or rushed episode to do. Uh, but he goes to get a copy of the Tally Ho. He has to tear it off himself because there's no one there to actually tear the paper off for him. Yeah, and before, whereas it was opinion poll, now it says results. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he hears over the tannoy the uh, voice of Fenella Fielding announcing that number six had been declared unmutual. And uh, yeah, the, the Tally Ho confirms it as well. Number six declared unmutual. Mm. And I think the... The face he pulls is just as stern as the photo they seem to use <laughs> on the cover of it as well. So at some point he must have posed for some very angry looking photos and have used those. Um, so Six returns to his cottage and I think at this point you realise how eerily silent everything is. Mm. Um, he looks around, he goes to his phone and he picks it up to see, the, I presume if he can hear a dial tone or anything like that, but there's nothing there. It's completely silent and he shouts hello a few times, but you know nothing happens. And then the door to his cottage opens and we have uh, the appearance of uh, several women who form the appeals subcommittee. Yeah, including number 42. Yeah, who has been converted. Yeah. <laughs> and the, just the phrase, the appeals subcommittee, it, it, it kind of um, bureaucratises every aspect of society where, you know, something is you know, clearly horrific as potentially giving somebody a lobotomy because they like their privacy and are occasionally grumpy with the people around them and don't conform in the way that they're supposed to. Um, and boiling it down to something as sort of, um, you know, bland as the appeals subcommittee or the group who might mean that you don't get tortured. Mm. You know, it's it's turning everything into one great bureaucracy um and sort of deadening the impact of it with um names that don't really mean anything you know if they're the subcommittee who are the appeals committee for them to be the subcommittee <laughs> it, and what, what is the process of the appeal it doesn't even really seem to matter um but what matters is they've turned up at his door to uh look for contrition from him but they're not going to find it <laughs> and whereas the committee we saw earlier was male uh, obviously, this this committee here, or this appeals subcommittee, mm. is all female. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's also noticeable that um, they specifically refer to themselves as volunteers. <laughs> so this is this is some kind of volunteer social group out out helping people by sort of putting themselves forward to be the ones who kind of crash into people's lives and sort them out, even if the person doesn't want them. So it's basically volunteering to annoy somebody, really. It's like the world's worst intervention taking place, <laughs> where a bunch of complete strangers turn up at your door and say, hi, we're here to help you be less obnoxious. Um, we demand that uh, that you listen to us. Um, which basically happens 10,000 times a day on Twitter these days. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they don't get anything from him, and uh, so they march off and again we see number two and the supervisor are watching what number six is doing mm. from the green dome yeah so six is left you know on his own in his um in his house and it's interesting that that number two takes great delight in watching this um he sees him kind of potter about in his house a little bit but then 
Six goes out for a walk and it's clear that this is the cost of of Six's behaviour is that he will be left alone by everyone else. So he's no longer part of, you know, of the village, it seems. Um, and it's and two is basically trying to work out how long Six will survive like that. And when he goes out into the woods, he, you know, it's interesting. There's this very short scene, but a very interesting one where he uh, um, he gets a, a, you know, a stick or something and snaps it. And he looks up and he there's a few shots of him watching birds uh, flocking together in the sky, mm. actually. And it's a very, you know, it's a very simple moment. But this idea of, you know, him just observing, observing these birds as this, you know, this you know, a group, you know, a group of these things moving together and all going in the same direction and in the air as well they're all free arguably up in Mm. the air um whereas he's stuck on the ground on his own and he looks you know it's it's strange because these are the moments where it emphasizes also what two was probably saying which is you know how long you know how long will he be able to stay like this it's interesting that although six is somebody who does want to be on his own and outside of everything it's whether whether this treatment of him will will force him to to change in some way, and obviously we know it won't. But but the strategy they have is to is to hope that by making him feel alone, he will you know he will suddenly uh, conform more in order to become part of the bigger whole of the village community. Yeah, it, number two says, let's see how the loner will withstand true loneliness, <laughs> and then we see that. You know, the the effect of it on number six in that, although he's always sort of put himself apart from the rest of the village, he also effectively benefits from the fact that the community of the village is around him. You know, he's clearly used to actually at least saying hello to people Mm. in the morning when he feels like it and then not saying hello to them when he doesn't feel like it. And the next bit that we see is when he goes to a cafe and tries to order a coffee and the waiter just walks off. Mm. In fact, everyone just walks off. So all, all of these kind of community amenities that he's so used to benefiting from, even if he doesn't want to participate in them, are suddenly gone. Mm. You realise that al- although he is a bit of a loner, he has never actually really been a complete loner because he has still been engaging with all of these parts mm. of the community as well. And he looks, you know, he does look genuinely quite perturbed by the behaviour of the other village residents, mm. um, especially because they don't just get up and walk away, but they all kind of crowd together um, in another part of, of the area where he's sitting and just watch him from a distance, which is all the more sinister. And then, you know, I'm not sure how much time passes, but then he goes back to his house. When he goes inside, the appeals subcommittee are already waiting there for him um, and give him a bit of a speech as well. Yeah, you know what it's just reminded me of when everyone at the cafe is um, gets up and and moves over to the the, the left hand side and they're all just staring at him. <laughs> it reminds me of that episode of uh, of Community, you know, where um, Arbed makes uh, friends with Britta and Annie and Shirley and goes to their um, women's studies class and then starts being mean to all of the bullies in the class and then starts being mean to everyone in the entire school because he he thinks that everyone in school is is being a bully so he's going to be mean back to them and there's that bit in the 
cafeteria where he's sitting at a table and then he looks up and everyone in the cafeteria has gone down the other end because they don't want to be near him because he's being mean to everyone <laughs> and he re- and he realized at that point that he's well, i think he even described it as having like broken the functioning social order of the college mm. and he has to put things back the way they were by by letting the bullies take him down because he has become worse than them yeah from that perspective it's interesting to think about how six views this situation is this something which he has brought on himself or is it something that the village has done to him that's the one moment i think where it's where he's not sure exactly what game the village are really playing here it does make him uncomfortable to be in that position where people sort of stay away from him um he clearly doesn't you know he's you know he doesn't like it even though like you said earlier you know ultimately he he doesn't want to be part of the village at all, obviously, but he likes the freedom of being able to interact with them mm. if he wants to. And it's that freedom. It's interesting, although, you know, this loneliness is taking away an aspect of his freedom. It, it, um, it, it takes away social interaction, which is an element of his, his existence there. He realises that he is on his own, but he can define himself a little bit, at least, by his interactions with other people. And if you take that away you take away part of his freedom. So in that respect, something the village has done is affecting him fundamentally. So the uh, the appeal subcommittee in his cottage have basically come to tell him that socially conscious citizens will no longer tolerate his presence. <laughs> um, which, again, is an incredibly um, bland way of, of effectively telling him that he's going to be, be made a non-person. Mm by the society although by being in the village you are essentially a non-person anyway Mm. Mm. he speaks to number two on the phone which is apparently now working again and accuses him of of effectively wanting a kind of a a scapegoat so that you know the the community will have a sort of lightning rod for their anger at the situation that Mm. they're in um and number two you know spells it out very plainly to number six that what is going to be coming isn't going to be being drugged or anything like that, that it's going to be a separation of the aggressive frontal lobes of the brain. Um, And it's at that moment that you hear another Tannoy announcement saying that uh, any medical staff who want to observe his conversion in the hospital on uh, closed-circuit television should uh, go there right now. (laughs) Although it's interesting because you have seen so many times the conversation happen where and number two has always stepped back from doing anything that would harm number six. They're always worried about how important the information he has is and how they don't want to do anything that would be permanent or too serious. So you you have to wonder even at this point exactly whether what they're going to do is actually what they say they're going to do. Um, but, you know, but certainly there's something very, very sinister about how blunt he is um, about their plans and the fact that you know, they've had enough of, of the kinds of strategies they've used in the past, essentially. You know, this is what they're going to do to him. And and telling him is just all the worse uh, before they actually um, are about to do it. So as he emerges from his cottage, um, he sees various village members appear, most notably the appeal subcommittee, who uh, tell him that they are going to essentially take him to the hospital but they they do this by beating him repeatedly with umbrellas um and then a dude with a drum appears as well and they uh sort of subdue him and they drag him to the hospital 
where when he gets to the door, he's met by hospital staff, um, uh, one of whom uh, immediately drugs him and puts him uh, on a gurney and wheels him inside. Yeah, so it's sort of like a, a violent procession through the through the village taking him. You there. don't need a drum for that. It's very bizarre. <laughs> like like it's an odd thing. I mean, because you see it in like in in quick cuts of the of the mm. scene that there's a dude with a drum, I and mean, it is it is very much the spectator thing, which is which number two suggested would happen. But you know, there's there's one thing about a mob. There's nothing about a mob beating him into submission to take him a you know long uh, to the hospital. But then to have a guy with a drum there to actually turn it into an actual, you know, celebration of in some, you know, in some way, it's it's it, you know, that's, that's that's really bizarre. Yeah, it's a mob with their own percussion unit <laughs> that they bring along with them. And then when he's on the um, stretcher in the hospital, um, and he's already been drugged, and they they wheel him into the room, and you get this wonderful kind of upside down camera POV of him coming into the room. I'm sort of alternating between watching him get carried in and then seeing this upside down world <laughs> as he's being wheeled in. And uh, I was I was reading in um, uh, Rob Fairclough's book um, a, a quote from Tony Sloman where he talks about this particular shot being made, um, this sort of complicated tracking shot as the trolley gets pulled through. And apparently they uh, they'd been rehearsing it for ages. Um trying to get the shot right again and again and it was getting on for nine o'clock in the evening and they were supposed to finish dead on nine o'clock and they'd been rehearsing this shot again trying to get it right over and over and finally they'd sorted it out and they were filming it and nine o'clock came and all the lights in the studio went out because because nobody would work after nine o'clock <laughs> so they had to shut everything down and apparently Magoom was really hacked off um, but they had to come back the next morning and do it again in order to get the shot because nobody would work after nine. <laughs> the crystal emits ultrasonic sound waves which are bounced off the parabolic reflector here. The focal point of the reflector can be seen here by use of light waves. So Six is uh, strapped to the table. He has these bizarre sort of yellow ear defenders put on and eventually everyone else will have them on as well. Um, and 86 presents the uh, the upcoming operation as some kind of old school open university broadcast um, <laughs> to, to people who are just observing as, you know, as um, recommended by the, uh, the Tannoy announcement. And she's kind of going through all the different steps which this um, operation will use, and it's being presented. You know, it's like shot, like it's done for television. So there, are, it cuts to the committee who are there to watch it as well. Um, it, you know, it doesn't really e- uh, emphasize all the medical professionals and people who they spoke about. It's more that you know, because those people are all assisting. It's very much um, something where she is, you know, presenting it, maybe to show the committee what she's doing, to show that they that he is undergoing this instant social conversion procedure and she goes through the fact that it's like some ultrasound um based method and uh goes through all these bizarre numbers and checklists and shows that uh, it produces this ray which is able to 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 burn a hole through a a polystyrene square for some reason (laughs) you know they have ran but again it's all part of that it's all part of the show of this whole thing Mm. um just to show that you know it's almost like a magician doing a trick going through all the different steps and revealing this as 
as the way in which it can be documented that Six is undergoing this procedure. And he's kind of partially awake, although he's drugged, his eyes are open occasionally. And it's not clear if he's fully aware of what's going on. But um, as they're lining it up, you know, this big thing that looks like a satellite dish almost <laughs> against his head, it's going to clear that he know, you know, he must be aware that something is happening. Um, but he's kind of powerless to do anything. And they're setting this whole thing up. And the whole time, what's interesting is, although it's all being dictated uh, by number 86, it's unclear if everyone, you know, including the committee as well, I suppose, are actually in on what is actually happening here. Because although they've demonstrated the efficacy of the equipment they have, um, they're not doing this procedure for real. They're actually doing it in a... Um, in an artificial manner to make to make it appear like it's happening and to make him believe that it's happening as well, um, but there's there's no evidence um, about who who is actually in on this. You know, are only certain people allowed to know that this is a fake thing? Um, yeah, because you you see her turn the dial on the on the sound down hmm. just as they're about to do it, so that so that basically the light is on. But there are no sound waves, hmm. so there's nothing actually happening to him. So it goes to the right place, but nothing's actually going to appear. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if anybody else sees her do that, because she kind of glances around a little bit and smiles and then turns the other dial all the way down. Does anybody else know? Hmm. Does anybody else in the room know that this isn't really happening? Hmm. Or is she just in on it with number two? Well, I think it's just her, because it's clear they have performed this procedure on other people. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's almost like there are, there are layers of lies that they have to maintain. And maybe one of them is they do use this procedure on other people, but the fact they've already said that number six is, is too important an asset that they would never do something like this to him anyway. You know, maybe in this case, they have to go through the motions of pretending it's happening so that everyone else involved knows that this, that this is a real procedure. Mm. But you're right. It's her wry smile and the fact that she turns it down you know surreptitiously means that you know she has been instructed to do something which she cannot let on to other people but for all intents and purposes it's a procedure which has been done before which has been used on village residents um, and that everyone is prepared to be you know actually happening for real so when number six wakes up he's been tended to by a doctor that we haven't seen before number 50 and he's got a, a plaster over his um sort of right temple where the skull would be, and uh, number fifty is is being very cheerful and saying, you know, oh, congratulations, it's, you know, wonderful operation, you'll be fine, go home, everything's wonderful, um, and uh, number eighty six is there and and lets the doctor know that she's gonna look out for him, and uh, so as they leave, number six sees that there's somebody new in the aversion therapy room who is being subjected to the same movie of rover number two and the word unmutual um and is going through the same kind of therapy as the as the previous guy but then as number six is sort of ushered out of the hospital he's greeted by this cheering waving <laughs> overjoyed crowd who are there to you know effectively welcome him back into society mm with open arms now that he's undergone this treatment. Yeah, and as he's driving the little mini-moke, there's people who are lining the route in the village uh, to kind of cheer him on. 
Um, like you say, it's all yeah. It's very it's very weird this idea that now he can be accepted, you know, back into society as a result of this treatment, uh, which of course he hasn't actually had. Mm. Um, but yeah, the idea that the that that the residents all all are in on this is what is is quite dark about the whole episode. But I think most of them do believe that he has had the right procedure done. I think that it goes back to what you were saying about who knew. I think if only a couple of people know, other you know, other village residents have been subjected to this. And it's clear it's continuing. I think that's why they show the uh the second shot of the aversion therapy room to show that this process is a real process that they use mm. on their own residents. And and certainly this is very specifically about I think uh, McGowan's criticism of what would have been the uh, the overuse or any use of of uh, lobotomies in the era you know around when the show was made and and preceding it um, as a as a justified um, uh, medical treatment in its you know in its frequency of use as well. Mm. Um, so the fact you know you know this is all this is all very much you know all about you know on one aspect it's you know, it's about the function of number six and the individual. On the other hand, he's making some very serious critiques of how social conformity is brought about. And it can be through many different means, but all of them are often imposed on people. They're never, they're never voluntary. There are always ways in which society seeks to control the individual rather than allow them to be themselves as part of the society itself. Yeah, and and you can even make it such that as with number 42 she you know she appears to be voluntarily taking part in the process but it's because of all of the coercion that has gone on Mm. up until that point that she feels she has no choice but to want to make this social progress within the group and put herself through it yeah with the ultimate threat of of being lobotomized Mm. Mm. so so when they get back to number six's cottage number two is is lounging around in his chair I think he ate all the biscuits in the previous scene. <laughs> he was eating a biscuit for ages and he never quite finishes it. And then he disappears and he goes back to the Green Dome. Mm. And now he's just like lounging around. You're right. He's come back for the biscuits. He's come back for the biscuits. <laughs> and uh, he, he makes this really patronising comment, number 86, calling her my dear and suggesting that she put the kettle on for them. He clearly really, really hates her. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he uh, gets up and number 86 tries to get number six to lie down and relax, trying to sort of lull him into um, a sort of relaxed state mm. while she makes some nice drugged tea for him to partake of. Yeah, number 86 is a is a really interesting character here. I mean, I know we've spoken a lot about the um, about how female characters are used in The Prisoner. It's interesting here that, again... It's a female scientist, mm. you know. Well, it's two things. One, and this is probably very different to how other shows um, of its era would, you know, I would have done this, but to have a female character as, um, well, a portraying an intelligent character who was not a love interest would have been two things that would have been diametrically opposite <laughs> how um, many female characters would have been in shows around this time as well. I mean, it, yeah, I'm not saying this was completely unique to The Prisoner, but um, it's interesting that they have repeatedly used this motif. Um, and also they, 
they have this conversation throughout, which is about number two being very dismissive of her as well. Mm. Um, which is something that we saw, I think, in A, B and C, wasn't it? Yeah. When it was clear that the the doctor who was administering the drugs, you know, she does know everything about how these treatments take place. And she is actually quite cautious about doing things. It's It's the ignorance of the number two who wants to just push forward with a plan and doesn't take into account what the the health risks are to number six because they know that their mission is to break number six Mm. it's the person who's who actually knows about what the treatment is who's actually often putting the brakes on this as well and it's made even more obvious here because this number two no he doesn't like her but also makes several references to not liking her because she's a woman as well Mm. i really love the shot in this scene of where he sees her slipping the drug into the tea where it's 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 a really weirdly framed shot where you're kind of the camera is low low down to where he would be lounging on the chair and you see underneath the counter to where her hand is mm. and the counter's almost chopping the top third of the screen from from the rest of it so that you can kind of closer and closer see her hand next to the cup of tea i just think that's really beautifully framed mm. so uh yes he's although he's a little bit out of it he's clearly got enough of his senses left to cotton on to what's happening so uh, when she brings him the tea he tells her that he's cold and needs a blanket and while she goes to fetch one from the uh, wardrobe in the next room he uh, pours the cup of tea away into a conveniently placed vase <laughs> particularly about that little incident which has been causing you such absurd distress yeah. The trivia, the trivia of your resignation. Yes, you resign. Why? Why prematurely? Why did you resign? So, number six seems to doze off, and after an undetermined amount of time, he wakes to find uh, number two flicking the plaster on his forehead Mm. uh, rather callously. And uh, yeah, number two is there for a little chat about trivial piece of uh, information that he would like, just the uh, the small matter that's caused him so much distress, the matter of his resignation. Mm. Which he refers to as, as the trivia, the trivia. Mm. <laughs> it's very bizarre. So uh, yes, yeah, so number two clearly thinks that Number six in this drugged and allegedly lobotomized state might finally give up this piece of information mm. that has eluded every other number two to date. Uh, but yeah, even in this state, number six isn't going to give that piece of information up. And when number two starts to lose his temper, that he isn't getting anywhere, number six says, oh, you know, don't be angry. Um, and clearly starts, I think he starts playing number two, even mm. at this point. And uh, number two immediately has to react to this. And says, oh, I'm not angry. That's just how, that's just how things seem to you. <laughs> so it's kind of this horrible piece of gaslighting, basically, where, you know, you can get angry and shout and then say, I wasn't angry. You just, you're just imagining that I am because there's something wrong with you. Mm. I mean, one problem I have with this scene is that it suddenly introduces the fact that number two is trying to get the information about Six's resignation from Mm -hmm. him, when actually that hasn't really been the focus of 
all the machinations of the village up until this point in the episode. Mm. It's all been about this idea of uh, conforming to the social norms of the village and coming up with strategies to make Six conform and reveal to him sort of what they've done to other people. At no point has there been a you know a scene with number two discussing with anyone you know I will you know I will I will get the information about his resignation and that just to drop it in here seems a bit strange because it would have almost seemed better just to have the episode focus on the village finding a way to make him conform. You know, it's a secondary thing that they get the answer about his resignation. And actually, after the last few episodes as well, at least in terms of broadcast order, that hasn't really been raised, mm. it feels. I mean, you know, it's not like the... It hasn't been the pressing issue for a while. Um, although it's clearly what, you know, what they're trying to do. So it's it's odd to drop it here now because it's not like they've done the usual thing of giving him, um, you know, some kind of truth serum or convincing him of a new reality that will make him reveal something unintentionally. Mm. Um, it's almost, yeah, it just seems odd that they would, they would put this in. It's almost like they want to add something to the episode that anchors it to the, to the plot of what the prisoner is about sometimes, which is obviously, uh, number two, whoever that might be, um, working on behalf of the village to get the information about his resignation. Mm. Because uh, Ivan number two is ultimately behind, you know, the, the committee bringing number six in and setting all this in motion. Or he genuinely didn't have any power over the committee in them doing this, or even passing the judgment down. But he has intervened in getting number eighty six to not actually carry out the um, the operation. In which case, he's basically not letting a crisis go to waste. Mm. He's saying, you know, well, well if, if this is happening, how can I turn it to my advantage um, and make sure that he doesn't actually get permanently damaged? Because presumably it would be on number two's head if that actually happened. Mm. But it raises an interesting question of whether the village is functioning independently of number two here. Mm. Um, you know, he's clearly there to do his job. But maybe this episode is not about that at all. Um, in the same way that, um, I know we keep bringing it up in this episode, but was it the general way you could see that there were military police around mm, and things like yeah. that? And we were talking about how maybe the village gets, you know, it, it has it has other other things going on. Um, this is almost a, a plot by number two to find out why Six resigned, set against um, a much bigger plot which is to do with uh, the village trying to get Six to conform. Maybe their grand plan is to make him conform and then hope that by him being part of village society, he will eventually open up. Whereas this number two is kind of blundering in with a with a more uh, sort of kamikaze approach to getting the information, hoping that he can sort of surreptitiously get his mission accomplished um, on the side of, of the chaos that's being caused by the village's plan to... Uh, to get number six to uh, finally become a resident after all this time he's been there. Yeah, so uh, number two leaves and number six goes to the bathroom mirror and starts looking at the scar under the plaster and playing with it. And uh, he's being watched doing this by uh, what well, seems like number two is teleported back to the green dome again <laughs> because he's already there. 
Um, this time it's him and number 86 who are watching and discussing the fact that he seems suspicious already and they are suspicious of his suspicious behaviour because they're worried that, that maybe the drugs aren't working and uh, and he, he shouldn't really be questioning what's happened to him at this point. He shouldn't be suspicious and that's making them suspicious. And they, they have a bit of an argument about whether or not he can be given a second dose of the of the drug that has mitol that uh, 86 has given him because um, they watch him on the screen and he's sort of banging around on the tables in his apartment and uh, generally acting a bit aggressive and it seems like he is un- still under the influence of something at this point just not the most recent dose of the drug that um, that they believe they've given him so you know that they want him to believe that he's had the operation he wants them to believe that they've successfully administered the drug so everybody is double bluffing everybody mm. at this point and uh, 86 doesn't want to give him another dose of the drug so soon and uh, and number two insists that she should go back and repeat the dose which again is a bit like in a b and c when con gordon's number two tries to uh, get number 14 to give um number six a second dose of the hallucinogenic mm. drug in the same night and she flatly refuses because it's too experimental so in this instance she does go back to give him another dose of the drug and uh, number two justifies this by uh, saying that uh, it's fine to give number six an extra dose because he's as strong as a bull which uh, again is going back to this repeated references that you get in this to uh, livestock and it just makes me think of that comment about in the script about him being like <laughs> a livestock auctioneer because he's mentioned mules, mm. and uh, and now we've got bulls, and uh, they'll carry on as well. Number six likes to talk about sheep a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so number 86 uh, goes back to Six's cottage, and she makes him tea again in order to administer another eight grains mm. of, uh, of mitol. Now, uh, Six is clearly wise to th- what's going on now. Um Obviously, number eight six has to play along a little bit because she's not sure what what six knows. Mm. Um, to her knowledge, six is under the impression that he has had this lobotomy, and that's probably why she's decided to go back and give more of this because she's trying to work out whether there is a way to uh, suppress his um, uh, suspicions in some way, mm. at least. Now he rejects the cup of tea. And then in a slight, slightly bizarre kind of infomercial style <laughs> manner, he uh, he gives her instructions on how to make another cup of tea, um, you know, in a teapot, which kind of annoys her quite a lot. But he steps away after it's brewing um, just to allow her the chance to go up to uh, actually um, uh, prepare the the tea i think milk first as well yeah that's that's his real crime here <laughs> he puts the milk in first what's he doing um because then it also means that whilst he's got his eye on her he can then see that um she's adding one of these drugs into one of the cups of tea so when he goes back over having collecting something from one of the cupboards um without her knowing he can then switch the cups around so the one that she put the drug into which was meant for him he has switched and so now she will get the one with the drug in it 
Now, the one thing I don't get about this is how he's able to do this, given that they have so much surveillance yeah, in that flat. And they would know to be probably wise about him handling the cups of tea as well. Even she would probably be watching out of the corner of her eye to see what was happening. You know, why it is um, he manages to get away with this, I don't know. But it does help uh, help the plot, I suppose. Yeah, because number two and the supervisor are watching this happen. Yeah. Um, but they don't notice his sleight of hand in switching mm. their cups over. And it, But I suppose number two is a bit distracted because uh, he declares it's also charmingly domestic that now he fancies a cup of tea <laughs> and probably sends the butler off to get one. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he was just thinking, mm, tea, and uh, didn't notice number six switching the cups over. But yeah, it's a bit of a uh, Princess Bride switcheroo mm. going on. And then we immediately cut to the after effects of this which is uh, obviously now with the cups having been switched, um, the only dose of, uh, of, the, of the mitol has actually now been ingested by number 86, who seems um, sort of drugged up to her eyeballs, com- <laughs> you know, and completely, well, well, she appears almost high, doesn't she? Mm. You know, it's clearly something which is meant, I mean, so to refer to it as something, you know, as using drugs that would suppress his aggression which would be one of the physiological effects they would hope would uh mimic what would happen with a lobotomy so mm-hmm. so it's clear that they you know that all the drugs that they use in this are ones which would convince six that he had undergone a physical operation uh through using drugs that would mimic these things and so now uh, these things are all um in 86 rather than number six so six can now use this whole situation to his advantage yeah, so so now that 86 is just sort of um, slouching around and kind of singing to herself <laughs> and generally acting completely high, um, number two is very angrily watching it and uh, goes on to the uh, apparently village-wide announcement system to demand that she report immediately. Number 86 heads off to um, go and report to number two, while number two himself is is muttering to the supervisor about stupid woman's going to ruin everything. It's very hello, hello. Yeah. <laughs> um, meanwhile, number six decides to go out for a walk himself. And uh, first he encounters, um, I think it's number 46, who is the, the lobotomized man that he met in the hospital hmm. earlier on, and uh, has a, a, a chat with him about whether or not he feels different. And you do wonder at this point if number six is still trying to figure out if this has actually happened to him. Because hmm. he, he, he's asking number 46, do you feel different? And 46 says, oh, you should know. And kind of points at his um, his scar before wandering off. So uh, six then wanders back into the forest and finds his gym equipment hmm. that he built there. But at first he doesn't seem to have any particular desire to use any of it. Um, maybe because the the effects of the lingering mitol have, you know, got rid of his aggression, or you know, he he just kind of stands around looking at it. Although I wonder if also he's aware that he does feel differently because he's he's like he's still confused, and he mm. must have something in his system which is slowing him down a little bit. Yeah. Um, like through chemical means, and it almost seems like he he's not sure if he has his reflexes back. He's not sure if these if these changes are physical changes mm. or as he suspects just ones that have been induced by drugs to mimic the whole thing mm. so when he goes up and he's looking at the equipment it's almost like he's trying to work out what's going on i mean I, 
is it something that's happened to him that is physical rather than um, chemical? Yeah. But while he's up there, the uh, two stripy goons come back <laughs> that we saw at the beginning, who are now feeling very smug because clearly number six is not in his right mind. And uh, first they start hitting the punching bag and then they start trying to use number six as a punching bag. Um, you know, clearly believing at this point that he is effectively defenceless mm. because they think that he's had this operation. But uh, yeah, unlucky for them once again uh, that it's not going to work. And this, it, it seems to actually trigger something in him where an instinctive reaction to defend himself makes him realise that he has still got those instincts mm. inside. Yeah, he does have a slightly delirious look throughout this whole thing. Um, but it, yeah, but you're right, there's a moment of realisation where he, he, he senses that he is able to, uh, to fight back. And, mm. and, and maybe he also knows at that point that there isn't something physically wrong with him, that this procedure never actually happened. Um, all it seems to be, in some respect, is that he was concerned that it may have happened, but now he's aware that it was just the village sowing the seed of doubt in him about the whole thing that has probably been what's driving his behaviour at the moment. Mm. It's not the fact that anything has actually been performed on him at all. Yeah. And after some very brief fisticuffs this time, he seems to dispatch them quicker this time than he did last time, but maybe that's just because they weren't expecting it at all. <laughs> um, he, he carries on with his walk and he finds number 86, who hasn't reported to number two yet, to be picking flowers mm. and insisting that she wants to make number two happy. And uh, they, they have this strange chat where number 86 says, I'm higher than number two. Mm. Now, she could literally mean that at that point in time, she is higher than number two because she's completely high on whatever these drugs are that she intended for number six. But it could also mean that in the in the, in the the eyes of the village, she ranks more highly than number two, mm. even though he's number two and is a higher number and is ostensibly in charge. She might still be deemed more important if she has the knowledge and the technical ability to you know, carry out these operations mm. because we've seen how easily the number twos are replaced. Are the number twos even really that important if they can be replaced mm. week in, week out? Whereas, you know, an experienced and intelligent scientist is a lot harder to replace than an administrator. Mm. No, I think I think you're right. It's There's always been this query over, over the nature of what what the village actually is. And I think in this case, certainly in this episode, it does feel like number two is the most peripheral member of the village here. You know, the citizens all conform. The committee seems to be running everything that would keep the village in check. And number 86 is mediating these procedures as well for the village. So in a strange kind of way, is this is this that separation we were talking about earlier between the permanent members of the village who are there all the time running the whole thing and doing certain things, doing research on people and trying to, you know, carry out village activities there versus the number two who is flown in and flown out, you know, on a <laughs> weekly basis to see if they can uh, perform the task of breaking number two. Yeah. And when number two is chatting to the supervisor and basically wondering where number 86 has got to, um, he refer he just refers to her as the girl. Mm. Um, which, you know, if she does rank more highly in the village's 
hierarchy of importance, if not numerically, it gives context to the resentment that number two seems to have towards her, mm. where, you know, to him, she's the girl, but to the village, she's this scientist who is more valuable to them than number two is. Which is confounded by the fact that he makes you know, very sexist comments all the time anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to delineate the two. Yeah, uh, so number six and Embrady six are still chatting, and... Uh, Number six uses his watch to hypnotise her um, while she's under the influence mm. of these drugs um, and convinces her that he is, you know, a, a superior within the village hierarchy and wants her to report on what's been going on, which she then um, dutifully explains what the whole setup was, mm. that number six was made to think that the experiment had happened it was actually faked his use of tranquilizers, and uh, once Number Six knows everything that's gone on, he then uses this uh, the tail end of this hypnotic state to give her some mysterious final instructions for when the village clock strikes four. Hmm. So it's it's also interesting here because he's using. Is this the first time that he uses? Uh, some kind of mind control or mind trick on a member of the village. Mm. I mean, all the times that he's been drugged, he's just basically getting his own back now. <laughs> you know, he's using the fact that the village uses methods of uh, of uh, mind control and brainwashing to get their own way uh, to keep to keep people suppressed with um, with drugs, so they don't they don't rebel to make them behave in certain ways. Uh, like the sheep that he often refers to them as, um, and for the first time he's actually deciding to. Uh, well, it's almost like he he sees his advantage here much further in advance than he usually would in an episode of The Prisoner. <laughs> you know, he sees he sees what he can do and actually engineer the closing the closing moments of you know of the plan himself mm. um, without hastily putting it together or relying on anyone else because often. He gets close, but he has to rely on other people. And yeah. they always let him down. In this case, he can actually be in control because he knows that what he can engineer will outsmart everyone and also undermine and uh, upset number two as well. Yeah, one of the things that rankles with me slightly about this is that he seems to recover incredibly quickly within the last sort of five minutes of what's happened. So it's gone from him still being a little bit out of it mm when he was attacked in his, you know, forest gymnasium, hmm. to suddenly now being so lucid and coherent that he can perform hypnosis on someone else yeah. and plan what he's going to go and do to number two next. Yeah, which involves also him pretending that he's still under the influence of of the treatment that number two has, well, believes that he has convinced him has actually taken place. So he's able to say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, suddenly manipulate the situation in a way that would require a, an amount of lucidity that has come to him a bit too quickly. Mm. You're cheering me. That is a mistake. It is number two you should applaud. <laughs> Until he brought about my social conversion, and believe me, it was him and not your committee. Until then, I was a rebel, an unmutual, senselessly resisting this our fine community. So back at the Green Dome, number two gets word that number six has arrived to talk to him. 
and uh, number six now pretending to be drugged at this point says that he's got a clearer mind now and he wants to carry on with the chat they were having earlier uh, but he wants to talk publicly about why he resigned under the pretense that if he confesses publicly and might encourage other members of the village who have their own secrets to come forward mm. and, and confess them. And number two, who, you know, is, is at this point willing to go along with whatever this thing is that number six wants to do, if it's going to get the piece of information from him that he wants, which is why he resigned, he agrees to, uh, to let this public confession go ahead. So the announcement goes out that everyone who isn't currently occupied must go to the village square for, uh, for the confession. And a lot of people who are listening uh, to the announcements, it's interesting that a lot of them are wearing top hats and the stripy clothes of committee members as well. Yeah. So it does almost seem like the plan is working so well that uh, he may have even convinced committee members who are probably floating around the village. You know how they went for a tea break earlier? They clearly just wander off from the village and do things in between uh, committee slots. Yeah. Um, so everyone is now ready to... Uh, to experience number six's big confession. So he's managed to convince everyone um, in a very short space of time. Yeah. Yeah. So th this publicly staged confession that number six wants to give, he says that he also wants to thank everyone for helping him achieve total social conversion. He wants to thank the ladies of the subcommittee and he wants to thank all the people on the committee. He does um, overdo it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got, he's got number two believing that he has been converted. He just he always he always overdoes his uh, his ruse a little bit too much. <laughs> but number two comes out with another one of his um, rural proverbs that uh, he who ploughs straight furrow needs o for nothing, um, which is is deeply ironic at this point because both of them are tricking the other. Mm. Um, both of them are pretending that that something has happened to them that hasn't happened to them. Uh, so they're, they're both lying to each other and they're about to carry on lying to each other while coming out with proverbs about ploughing a straight furrow <laughs> and telling the truth. <laughs> so everyone congregates to listen to Number Six gives his speech. At the beginning of his speech, first of all, Number Six gets the crowd cheering for Number Two <laughs> by saying, you know, it, it was Number Two who brought about Six's social conversion, not the committee. He makes that kind of explicitly clear, even though there's meant to be this total division between Number Two's powers and the committee's actions. He's planting the idea in their minds that actually Number Two is the power behind the committee and is and, driving their actions. Yeah, Number Two clearly looks uncomfortable at this point because mm. he's not sure exactly where this is going. And maybe this is the moment where he realises that the situation is potentially not, not in his control. <laughs> And uh, yeah, n number six describes um, number two using one of his own proverbs, which is the butcher with the sharpest knife has the warmest heart, <laughs> which disturbs the crowd, understandably. Um, and again, it's the last of these kind of rural you know, farming um, related proverbs. That get used, but but specifically linking number two to being the butcher who has been operating on mm. people. Uh, but but still, he carries on with this pretense that he's about to give his big revelation of why he resigned, and uh, he kind of draws out this speech of 
you know, some of you have secrets, maybe you've been withholding them, and but I'm here to give you an example. And then finally the clock strikes four and number 86 steps forward under her hypnotic suggestion to declare that number two is unmutual. <laughs> and this immediately gets a response from the audience hmm. because number six says, well, this is a, you know a confession that has been made by number 86. And sheep-like as they are, they immediately turn on on number two and they and they start you know shouting that number two is unmutual number two is unmutual and uh he gets beckoned down and led away mm. yeah he, he he kind of gets he tr- sort of tries to leave and sort of head for the green mm. dome i guess but the the crowds start following him yeah and as they're chanting it's kind of interesting because it's not they're not chasing him at first but it's clear that the pace starts to pick up. And again, mm-hmm. the guy with the drum is there as well. <laughs> and it's notable that they show uh, number 42 mm. as well, um, vocally following him and shouting, you know, uh, unmutual, unmutual. Because it's, you know, it's all to do with what I think Six was saying earlier, which is, you know, this committee that, that you look to for... Um, providing some kind of order in your society is doing it through mind control and through manipulation um it's not you know it's not you know it's not you that actually has any say in this this is a this is a procedure which is being forced upon you through um you know through means which you don't even understand it's all just a a brainwashing experiment essentially Mm. um and yet even then in their anger they still all act like a flock of sheep anyway. Mm. Yeah, and Roger Parks, who wrote the episode, has said that this end scene um, is partly a reference to uh, Julius Caesar by Mm. William Shakespeare, and specifically the speech that Mark Antony gives to the Romans, where he starts out praising Caesar, but then ultimately ends up denouncing him Mm. to uh, to everyone, and the the crowd react to that. But the, 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 the power of this finale is detracted from somewhat by the inexplicably bad doubles that are used in some of the shots. Because um, Patrick McGowan and uh, John Sharp are, are clearly on a studio recreation of that colonnade mm. bit in Port Marion. And, but when you see the, the wide shots from the back of the crowd who have gathered to listen... That actually is Port Marion. And the two people standing on the balcony who are meant to be number two and number six don't look anything like number mm. two and number six, which is really weird. But but you might just kind of skip past it in your mind. But then, when the crowd is following number two up through the village and, and sort of towards the Green Dome, and, and number two is kind of like half running towards the end, up, mm. up the stairs, you see him... Uh, it, it's someone who doesn't look even remotely like John Sharp. <laughs> In fact, is is it is it McGowan standing? It, it does. It does look a lot like Frank Mayer. So it's highly unlikely that McGowan would double here <laughs> because he, you know, it really does look like Frank Mayer because it's a double who looks a lot like McGowan from the back. Yeah, um, he's too tall, um, and he moves too differently. I mean, like, and it, it must be. In the, it must have been the case that they just needed him just to do the running away scene 
and they hope that he'll be so far away that you wouldn't really notice. No, but it ends up being really confusing. Because <laughs> it does look like number six, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you watch it and you think, but where they were following number two a moment ago, but now he's not there. Hmm. I mean, it is really confusing. <laughs> Um, which, you know, the, the, it's the prisoner it's allowed to be confusing and completely mess with your head, but in that circumstances, they could have just got someone a bit balder, a bit shorter, <laughs> <laughs> and, just, and just made them walk um, up the stairs instead of, instead of using someone who not only didn't look like number two, but actively looked like number six instead <laughs> when number six is not there. He's, uh, he's still hanging out by the colonnade with the butler. Yeah, who uh, opens up his umbrella and uh, walks towards the screen as the episode ends. Yeah. See, the, the, the butler doesn't join in the yeah. little unmutual, unmutual parade. He just does his own thing. I think it's you know, you, there's a reason why you never see the butler and the supervisor in other situations, which is that they are, you know, they are installed in the village as, as, as long-term residences as well. You know, they're there to do specific tasks. And and you're right, the butler is is independent of everything. But I think that's because ultimately the butler probably works for number one. They don't work for number two. They're there they're there just to carry out, you know, um you know, the role of a of a of a butler for the number two who's there. But they're used to the turnover as well. So that was our recap and dissection of A Change of Mind, episode 12 of The Prisoner. Yeah, one that I think we initially said we didn't have much to talk about. <laughs> uh, but actually, when you start discussing it, it is, you know, it's an episode that you do discuss. Um, but what happens in it is not, you know, it's not the most plot heavy episode, but it covers lots of really interesting themes that I think reflect what uh, the show was about, especially for McGowan himself. You know, there are lots of these moments when this is McGowan rallying against the viewer in some respect, saying, you know, do you know, you do not have to conform. You know, if people are telling you that this is how social order works, um, you should be suspicious of it. This idea that you should be suspicious of authority. Uh, what you raised earlier about, you know, about the nature of art and artists and how they cannot often by their very nature be be part of this conformist society so all those all those things but set against some very obvious and pointed reflections on as we said you know um uh, mccarthyism and the idea of these forced confessions the ideas of using drugs to manipulate individuals and indeed the population um there's a lot there's a lot that the episode has to say Ultimately, I'm not sure if it was the best way of saying it, but um, it still makes for a really intriguing episode of the show. Yeah, it's it's unique in that it 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 it, it creates a very unnerving story because it's specifically his peer group that is turning on him rather than just the authorities, um, which is. In in some ways, in in the real world, that is a worse thing to happen because if if authority is corrupt or oppressive, then you know what it is and you can attempt to fight it, even if you're not successful. But when 
your peer group turns on you, it's almost impossible to do anything about it. Because the more you try and convince them that they're wrong, the more they're going to be certain that you're wrong. Mm. And there's there's no there's no one that you can fight because it's everyone. And it's it's not a figure of authority that you can go after because it's it's the very people around you. Mm. And you know, I mean I mean this is one of the things that I find quite disturbing about social media is the tendency of people to react en masse in a, you know, what I would think would be a slightly over the top way, but clearly they don't think it's an over the top way because they do it. But maybe that's just because I grew up before social media and I think it's strange. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into this too much, but to me, this is one of the most disturbing episodes of The Prisoner because I see the echoes of that kind of behaviour in, frankly, fairly common use in the world around me. Yeah, it's just, it's the kind of mob mentality and the uh, gathering together of, of, of outrage hmm. and, and targeting it at specific people in order to kind of outnumber them in some way and outmaneuver them. It's very much a, an episode about the extent to which the hierarchy can, can ultimately manipulate everyone below it to believe that they are doing something for a very specific reason mm. and be completely unaware that they are being manipulated into following a specific uh, perspective or essentially being pushed to doing something at the will of somebody else. You know, it can, you know, it's it's the idea that you give, you know, it's a it's a fake sense of control you give people by making them believe that what they're doing is correct because everyone else is doing it. And I think what's nice is that in spite of all that, in an episode when, like you say, it's not just the village hierarchy but the other residents as well who are taking sides against number six, it's important that it shows that six is able to defy them. Hmm. Even even one person, when cornered by all this, is able to stand up against it and ultimately defy it, uh, which I think is a is a very interesting and important message and, and one which, like many aspects of the show, is still relevant today as it was you know, when it first aired just over 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, I even think of it in, in my own way when I, when I see these things happen. You know, when I see some Twitter storm happen or something like that and, you know, and, and everyone gets very angry about an out-of-context quote from somebody... And, and reacts immediately and, and with finality to it where they they not only have a, a, a sort of an intense immediate reaction to whatever it is, but they have no interest in understanding the context behind it. And in fact, they reject the idea that you need to find the context behind it as itself being the wrong take hmm. to have on it. Um, and then cement that this is their new view of someone and that's that's it you know that's the line drawn under it they're not mm. going to uh, to change that so that you know when i when i see these these things happen i think of it in terms of you know oh apparently so and so has said something unmutual on twitter and now everyone's very angry with them mm. or something like that you know that's that's the term that i actually think of directly from the prisoner yeah ultimately somebody says something it's taken out of context and it just feels like 
a large proportion of, of social media just holds up a piece of cardboard that just says unmutual. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that is the verdict which is passed down seemingly on behalf of everyone, even though it's meted out by the people who choose to engage in it mm. in a strange kind of way. Yeah, which is actually just the people who are the most vocal about it. So having said that, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with that, that's, that's the end of us rabbiting on for a, a little bit. Coming up next, we have news from the world of the prisoner from friend of the podcast, Rick Davey, from the Unmutual website. <laughs> this is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. The first guests have been announced for a celebration of ITC, the event taking place at Elstree Studios on the 17th of November. Friend of the Tally Ho podcast, actress Annette Andre, has been announced as the first star guest, joining director John Huff, who began his career working on The Baron and the Champions. Tickets are still available for the event, and more guests are to be announced at the Coit website. In other Annette Andre news, her memoir, Where Have I Been All My Life, has been announced and is available to pre-order, also from Coit Media. The first 400 copies sold will be signed copies and be at a 25% discount. In other book news, as you will have heard on the recent special edition of the Tallyho podcast, The Prisoner, the original art edition hardback book from Titan Comics, is now available. The book features the original art from the aborted The Prisoner comics by Jack Kirby and Gil Kane from the 1970s. Also on sale is the latest official Prisoner art print from Vice Press, featuring Patrick McGowan, Leo McKern and Angelo Muscat. More details are on the Unmutual website. In other news, playwright Hugh Whitemore, who wrote The Best of Friends and Pack of Lies, which both starred Patrick McGowan, has passed away. In other news, the organisers of Festival No. 6, the annual music and arts festival held in Port Merion, have announced that this year's festival is to be the last for a while, while they take a break. And finally, French film and TV magazine So Film has a special feature in its latest issue on Port Merion. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. So thank you to Rick once again for bringing us the latest news. We've booked our tickets to the ITC event that's going to be happening in November. So if any of you are going to be there, um, do come and say hi. It'd be lovely to chat to you. Uh, until then, if you uh, if you want to say hi right now, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, where you can accuse us of being unmutual if you feel like it. <laughs> Don't do that, please. <laughs> uh, or you can find us on Facebook. Uh, the group is Time for Cakes Now, or on our website, timeforcakesnow.com. Yeah, and if you're listening through a podcast provider like iTunes, if you have a moment, please do uh, drop us a review and a rating as well, uh, because it really does boost the signal uh, that the podcast has as well. Um, and we'd also like to thank everyone who uh, goes out of their way to share um, all the news of our episodes, either on Facebook and Twitter, and, and gets the word out as well. Because we do notice it does bring in lots of new listeners as well. And it's really great when people get in touch and say that you know they've come to the podcast for the first time, and they're watching The Prisoner along with us. And 
it's nice just to kind of share this experience um, of going through one of our favourite shows with everyone all around the world, which is a really strange thing that you can only really do now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I can't imagine you could have done, you know, even a few years ago, I think. Uh, so thank you all for listening and thank you all for uh, providing all your really positive feedback on all the stuff that we're doing. Yeah, um, my voice has just about held out for the duration of the episode. I'm very glad that this was not one of our longer episodes, although it was longer than we expected. <laughs> Please tune in next time when we'll be talking about episode 13 of The Prisoner. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. But for now, from the Tally Ho podcast, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.